It's a real delight to be here this evening, and thank you, Gary, for a very warm welcome. I thought maybe I'd start just by giving you a quick update on Hurricane Irma, um, because Mark, my son-in-law, and Amy, my daughter, were here with you for some time, and you know that they went to Florida, and uh, yes, Irma came right over Orlando, um, but they were fortunate enough to be in the one part of town that still had power after the hurricane went by, so they were able to give some uh, support and some shelter to others as well. They're in good form. Some of you will know that anyhow, thanks, of course, to social media. So there's our topic and the well-known passage that it's drawn from. Paul is writing from prison, probably in Rome, to his great friends, the Philippian Christians. He's absent from them. And he doesn't know when or if he'll ever see them again. With Paul gone, Philippi is vacant, but there's no convener or replacement convener and no associate minister. So it's actually Paul's letter itself which speaks into the situation. And I want to pick that situation up at the end of chapter 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves, says Paul, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw, I had and now hear that I still have. There's a lot going on here, but Paul is mainly saying two things. Number one, spelling out his vision for the Philippian church. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live out the gospel. And number two, what that entails. Striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Live out the gospel in unity, because united you stand, divided you fall. So what's the context? Well, the Philippian believers, a few dozen maybe, were surrounded by people who lived their lives quite differently. Not unlike following Jesus in Northern Ireland today. But Paul thinks big Believers in Jesus, says Paul, are one in Christ. And as the Philippians strive together as one for the faith of the gospel, that will be to people in Philippi nothing less than a whole new way of being human right before their eyes. And this is how Paul unpacks it. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... 
if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and by the way, the if is not iffy at all, this is how they are, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So there in prison, nothing would give Paul greater joy than unity and harmony in the church at Philippi. There being, as he says, verse 2, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Would they pull together in Paul's absence? Reading between the lines and also what's later in the letter, there was disunity. There was discord among the Philippian believers. There were differences of opinion. There was conflict in the way of harmony and unity. Conflicts, normal, natural, can even be a good thing. But managing and overcoming conflict positively, productively, working together unanimously for Christ, that's the challenge. And that, don't you know, is very, very hard. For all sorts of reasons, Paul just mentions two Selfish ambition, verse 3, conceit. Now, why home in on the Philippians' unity? Why is Paul making such a big deal out of unity? The answer lies in Paul's vision, a gospel vision for society. And for the impact that he hopes the church at Philippi will have on the city of Philippi. Unity among believers, unity of purpose in the service of others makes Christ visible, tangible, real as the world sits up and takes notice. Because what could be more magnetic, more attractive than seeing Jesus' followers living out the gospel in unity, living out a whole new way of being human in harmony of one mind, of one accord. So, for Philippi, let's read East Belfast. And for Philippians, let's read Orangefield. Aren't we reading this ancient letter because it might speak to us where we are? If having the same mind and the same love is how to show Christ to East Belfast or beyond, how may such unity be achieved? What game-changing element might make it happen? Well, Paul identifies it, and you've heard it already, and we've thought about and sung about it, humility. For overcoming conflict, And reaching a common mind with which to stand together for Christ, humility is the trick. Difficult, demanding humility. 
East Belfast man Jack, or C.S. Lewis, defined it in the 1940s in his radio talks, which later became mere Christianity. Humility is positioning myself lower than others' selves. It's submitting voluntarily to others. Humility is unselfishness. Of course, Lewis didn't figure that out by himself. He got it from Paul. In humility, verse 4, value others above yourselves. And he defines it, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Or to put it in words of one syllable, a lot less of me and more of you. So actually, Paul is pointing the Philippians to a double challenge. They need to get unity because that will blow Philippi away. But to get unity, they have to get humility first. Unity or harmony in serving Christ together shows him to the world, but to achieve that unity, we need humility. Or to put it crudely, an attitude transplant. And others first, me last, mindset. Paul's goal for the Philippians is their relational unity and harmony. A whole new way of being human that the human race hadn't seen before till Jesus by the Spirit made it happen. All one in Christ. But the road to that unity is the road to humility. So how do we get humility? And through humility, a unity to impact our city. Well, now comes the core of Paul's message. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here is the road to humility. You'll be familiar with the question, what would Jesus do? WWJD, I'm tempted to ask, has anybody got a wristband on? But Paul is asking a different question here. How would Jesus think? HWJT. HWJT. How would Jesus think? Because the road to humility turns out to be thinking the thoughts, sharing the attitudes of Jesus, being Christ minded. So how would Jesus think? Well, look at verse 6. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. From here to verse 8, Paul expounds Christ's thinking as a descent. Jesus' great descent. 
downward travel with the cross as the lowest point. But it's a long, long way down, as we're about to see. Paul starts, of course, where we were singing just now, in the highest possible place of exaltation with Jesus' heavenly status. And as Paul directs our gaze right up there, what do we see but Christ abdicate this in complete self-denial? Where everything begins, Jesus is in the form of God. He's God-shaped. Yet he's not thinking of holding on to this equality with God, draw some advantage from it, exploit it for his own ends. No, he's going to renounce He's going to resign it. There at God's side, Jesus is thinking about setting aside and leaving behind his heavenly status. The Son of God is thinking of denying himself, preparing for the greatest descent ever known. Verse 7. He made himself Nothing. Literally, he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant or slave being made in human likeness. From the unapproachable light and glory where God dwells, Jesus descends or, or condescends or, or stoops to enter our world. It's a Massive drop from Jesus' heavenly status to Jesus' human shape. But far more astonishing is that we see him accept this in total self-abasement. Paul says here, Christ emptied himself. Some scholars, some theologians have got all hung up on this. Emptied himself of what? Of his divinity? Did Christ stop being God? If so, and he was only human, how could he be our savior? Theological nails getting bitten off. But what Paul calls self-emptying is Christ exchanging heavenly status for human shape. It's abdication or renunciation. The one who was God-shaped became man-shaped. In fact, slave-shaped, self-emptying. What better term could there be for conveying Christ's descent in exchanging his God form for slave form, in relinquishing his heavenly status for human shape, in total self-denial? I'm going to fall over. And self-abasement. Do you get a sense of the drop? The massive drop from being at the side of God the Father himself to being among us. Does humility even begin to cover it? Cover what Christ was thinking when he was minded to lower himself from God's level to ours. Minded to let go of his heavenly status and accept human shape in its place. Maybe humiliation comes closer. But Jesus' self-abasement hasn't finished yet. 
he goes still farther down. Being found, verse 8, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. As if taking on our humanity wasn't humiliation enough. Here we descend even farther than Jesus' human shape to Jesus' humble submission. And we see him acknowledge this in complete self-sacrifice. The mind of Christ contemplated not just forgoing his entitlement to divine honors, undergo significant self-abasement, assume our human frailty. In exchanging God's glory for a slave's obedience, Christ's self-humbling attitude took him to the point of death in self-sacrifice. Not just death as experienced by any son or daughter of Adam, any mortal. No, no. Christ became obedient, end of verse 8, even to death on a cross. On the cross, the Son of God's descent touched rock bottom. It wasn't enough for the Creator to die a creature's death. Christ was fully disposed, minded, to undergo the most abhorrent execution practiced in the ancient world, the slow, degrading agony of crucifixion. The Romans didn't invent it, but boy, did they use it enthusiastically. We could stop here. We could recall together this spectacular, this breathtaking descent of Jesus, how it was all for us and for our salvation. In fact, we've already done it. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn, beaten, nailed to a cross of wood. The power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Of course, all of this is what Paul also means. But actually, verses 6 to 8 are not first and foremost about what Christ achieved for us. The gospel is for us, and ministers of the gospel must preach it. It's for us. We lay hold of it in faith. But that's not what this is mainly about. This is mainly about Christ's self-humbling, self-emptying, mindset. It's about him, not us, primarily. Paul is describing Christ's way of thinking, the self-denying, self-abasing, self-sacrificial attitude with which Christ relinquished heavenly status or his God form, took on human shape and offered himself in slave form, in humble submission. Brothers and sisters, in these verses, you and I are staring humility in the face. Humility, unselfish service of others made flesh in the human person of Jesus Christ. So why does Paul confront the Philippians? And by the choice of our passage tonight, why are we here in Orangefield this evening 
confronted with this. Well, Paul wants to say, here's how you, Philippians, Orangefield folks, should be thinking. We know this because of verse 5. Brothers and sisters, here's your pattern. This is the way to go. And then he goes on and he highlights Christ's mindset, his self-emptying self-offering as there and as our road of travel too. Not only believing in Christ, but suffering for him, being united with Christ, and therefore minded, attitudinal like him. H W. J-T. How would Jesus think? How did Jesus think his way to the lowest place of shame and death? Did you ever think about that? Did it maybe take 30 years or so between taking human shape and the point when, as the Gospels tell the story, he did give himself for others in humble submission. I really don't know. We may never know the secret of the making of Jesus's humble servant heart and servant mind. But I do know this. For you or for me, to think like Jesus, how would Jesus think? We're talking learning as in life long learning. Do I need to spell it out for me and for you? Learning to serve others, looking out for their interests self-sacrificially, isn't that a long, slow, steady climb down to the lowest place, to the cross? Because our default incessantly reinforced by the culture is looking after number one. Now you try, I try unlearning that. That self-centered way of thinking and of self-promotion. It's hard and it's long to think differently. It doesn't come naturally or easily. Thinking like servants, humbling ourselves, dying to self. But if I'm a minister of the gospel, there must be some good news somewhere, mustn't there? How does it come about? What if we learned this from one another? Week in, week out. What if this is the best thing to answer the person who says, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. I don't spend time with people that God says I've got to love and serve. That's what it means not to dip your toe in the water of congregational fellowship and all that it means. It's the discipline of being together and ministering to one another in Christ that teaches us this. You can't learn it on your own. Humility is not for being locked away in a room where it's dead easy to be humble because there's nobody else there to climb down in front of. Together we learn to put others first. Together we learn to build the harmony that humility is the road to. 
Together we learn to have the mind of Christ. Together we learn to serve as we help and encourage one another. And that's good news. That's the gospel too. And really, is there any more powerful picture anywhere of what humble service of one another looks like than what Catherine read and what was also enacted and played out for us, the foot washing of Jesus' disciples by Jesus himself in John 13. Hmm. That should keep you busy together throughout the vacancy, however long it might last. Washing each other's feet. Does he mean it literally? Well, I don't know. But at least metaphorically, it must apply to sacrificially serving one another, to putting others first and self-last, to learning humility together, thinking like Christ, preserving or creating unity on the road to humility. Well, far more briefly, what about verses 9 to 11? If the direction of flow in verses 6 to 8 was down, Jesus' great descent, well, the direction here is up. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From the deepest of depths in verse 8, to the highest of heights, from the cross of dreadful shame to the place that Jesus abdicated from when he took this on. From what Christ was thinking in his great descent to how God responded, Jesus' great ascent, or if you prefer, ascension. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. This is about Jesus' unique rank, granted to him by God as a result of his obedience. Christ had willingly gone down, 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 all the way down to the cross. And now as a recompense, Christ is granted God's own name, the name above every name. What name can that be but Yahweh's name? There ain't none higher. Jesus Christ bears God's own name. Paul doesn't spell it out here, but Christ's exaltation included his resurrection, his ascension back to God's side, back to the place of honor and glory which he had left. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Because as a reflection of Jesus' unique rank, as the one who shares Yahweh's name and fame, and in consequence of it comes Jesus' universal reign. Jesus, who in human shape and humble submission had died a creature's death by God-given rank, now enjoys dominion over all created things, sharing God's own dominion. To his son who took human shape and a slave's form 
becoming the servant of all. The Father now gives, as we sang in the last verse of that previous hymn, total sovereignty or lordship over all with every knee of every creature expected to bend in humble submission to him and every tongue. Verse 11, acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' unique rank, his universal reign, his unequaled reputation. What a contrast to the shame, the mockery, the disgrace associated with crucifixion. Jesus now acknowledged to be Lord of all. Christ enjoying God's own glory. New rank, new reign, new reputation. We already sang of the Christ who spectacularly, breathtakingly ascended to glory. Source of all sovereignty, light, immortality, life, everlasting heaven, assured so with the ransomed, we praise him eternally, Christ in his majesty, Jesus is Lord. Just as the story of Jesus' descent to the cross showed what Christian humility should look like for us, So also the story of Jesus' ascent or ascension to the throne, to rank, to reign, to reputation, that shows us what will be the destination for us on our road of Christian discipleship. The road to humility after God and Christ one day has finished molding us into the likeness of his Son. Paul rounds things off, and so do I, like this. Therefore, my beloved, remember he's absent from them. He's writing into their vacancy. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, For his good pleasure. God's at work, and we've got work to do on the road to humility. Brothers and sisters, as we follow Christ, we already share the self emptying, others serving reign of the servant king as partners together with him and for him. And we will follow him from shame to glory, one day sharing with him fully when the glorious day of Christ Jesus, the servant king, will arrive. Meantime, let us learn how to serve and in our hearts enthrone him, each other's needs to prefer for it is Christ we're serving. This is the gospel, the road to humility that Christ trod. It's our road too. It will take us to the unity of purpose that will transform all the environments into which we go as God's people. And all we need is to think like him and to learn that 
All we need is to look around for somebody to serve.